Welcome to the Sermon Podcast for Canton Church, a campus of Mount Perrin North. We exist to help people live a Christ-centered life, and we hope that you are encouraged by today's message. The great country singer Casey Musgrove, she has this stanza. She says, family is family in church or in prison. You get what you get, and you don't get to pick them. They may smoke like chimneys, but give you their kidneys. Yeah, friends come in handy, but family is family. And for the month of May, we are going to be drilling into that reality, that the fundamental institution for human life that transcends all time, that transcends all ethnicity, that transcends every culture and every national boundary is family. And as Christians, we believe that God created and ordained the family and specifically the way life is meant to be ordered in the family in a very particular way. Today, our topic is a bit weighty. It is a bit heavy. Today, we're going to be drilling down in family conflict. And I think that just attacking this subject is so important because of the idol of perfectionism that is at the center of American society, especially for moms and wives. Definitely for men, but I think even more so for women. You know, I have a Facebook account, and it's amazing to watch all of my Facebook friends, which somehow number into the thousands, which I don't even know that many people. I know like 10 people, and I have 2,500 Facebook friends. I don't even know how that happens. But the pressure that people feel to project this image of perfection when it comes to their family life is very, very real. And it very much touches my life. So I want to ask everybody to participate in this little exercise. Raise your hand if you have ever experienced pronounced family conflict in your life. Everybody do it. Everybody participate. If you haven't, don't lie. Keep your hand up. Keep your hand up. This is important. Now, everybody look around. Okay? Everybody look around. So the family conflict that you have experienced or are experiencing makes you a human being. Congratulations. You are normal. And I would say every Sunday I have the privilege of standing up in the attempt to teach the Bible to people. I try to remember uh, two things. I have this mantra that, that I say to myself. I say, Josh, remember, it's about family conflict and it's about money. These are the two things that are pressuring people all week long. These are the two things that people are dealing with on the ground. These are the two things that we are all trying to navigate the most. These are the two things that will either set our lives up for success or significantly derail our lives. The way we navigate family conflict and the way we navigate money. And personally, guys, there have been many times where I've had to stand up on Sundays and preach despite significant family conflict going on in my life, in my marriage, my immediate family, in my extended family. Family conflict is normal. It is a part of life. And today I believe that God's going to give us a lot of comfort, which is a good thing. But I also believe that God, through his word, not through me, but through the scripture, is going to put us, give some tools to us, put some tools in our hands to help us be on the right side of the line of family conflict. To help us be the kinds of people who know how to successfully navigate it. Some people in this room are going through some very pronounced family conflict right now. We're going to have a time of prayer at the end of the service after everybody else is dismissed. I hope you will let God in a bit this morning. I hope you will let this go beyond informational and let this morning be transformational. I hope you'll allow us to pray for you because I believe that God shows up and shows off the most and the best during the toughest times of family conflict in our lives. Now, when I was thinking about this subject uh, this morning, I remembered a letter 
that I had read actually two letters um, a little while ago. I think they were in the newspaper or something like this. I really don't recall the source, but it was so funny to me that I put it in my file. The first is a letter from a wife to a husband, and it's rather sad because it's a goodbye letter. She's decided to leave her husband, but his response is quite surprising. So hang in there for this. She leaves a letter on the dining room table. It says, Dear Husband, I'm writing you this letter to tell you that I'm leaving you for good. I've been a good woman to you for seven years, and I have nothing to show for it. These last two weeks have been awful. Your boss called me to tell me that you had quit your job today. You didn't even talk to me about it. That was the last straw. Last week you came home and didn't even notice that I had got my hair and nails done, cooked your favorite meal, and even wore a brand new dress. Yeah, I've done that once or twice in my marriage. It did not wind up very well. You came home, ate in two minutes, and went straight to sleep after watching the game. I've done that too, unfortunately. You don't tell me you love me anymore. Either you're cheating. Whatever the case is, this is over and I'm gone. P.S. If you're trying to find me, don't. Your brother and I are moving away to West Virginia together. Have a great life. Sign your ex-wife. Ouch. Here's his response. Dear ex-wife, nothing has made my day more than receiving your letter. (laughs) It's true that you and I have been married for seven years, although a good woman is a far cry from what you've been. I watch sports so much to try to drown out your constant nagging. Too bad that doesn't work. I did notice when you cut off all your hair last week, the first thing that came to mind was, you look just like a man. My mother raised me, though, not to say anything, if you can't say anything nice. Oh, it hurts, man. When you cook my favorite meal, you must have got me confused with my brother because I stopped eating pork seven years ago. I prayed that it was a coincidence that my brother had just borrowed $50 from me that morning, and that new dress you talked about cost $49.99. After all of this, I still loved you, and I felt that we could work it out. So when I discovered I had hit the lottery for $30 million, I quit my job and bought us two tickets to Jamaica. But when I got home, you were gone. Everything happens for a reason, I guess. I hope you have the fulfilling life you have always wanted. My lawyer said with the letter that you wrote, you won't get a dime from me. So take care. P.S. I don't know if I ever told you this, but Carl, my brother, was born Carla. Hope that's not a problem. (laughs) Signed, rich and free. A stupid illustration. But one that reminds us that there are ways of dealing and navigating family conflict that will make you richer and better off. And there are ways of approaching family conflict that will make you poorer and miserable. And we want to choose the right ways. This morning, we're going to be turning back to the book of 2 Samuel in the Old Testament to look at the family dynamics going on in what was arguably the most famous family in the Old Testament of the Bible, one of the most famous families across the ancient world of the time, the family of the greatest king Israel ever had, that is King David. And anytime I read King David, I'm American history buff. So I always make these connections to one of our greatest national leaders, which was Abraham Lincoln. If you happen to see the movie a few years ago where Daniel Day-Lewis played Abraham Lincoln, that movie gave us a window into the serious family conflict and marriage conflict that Abraham Lincoln had to endure even in the middle of the American Civil War. Turning to King David, boy, I'm reminded that no national leader's family conflict holds a candle to what King David 
had to navigate. And it's always comforting to me to read of these heroes of Scripture who just had these, these terrible bouts and episodes of family conflict because it reminds me that if God could handle their situation and could help them navigate through all their mistakes they made in relating to their family, you know God can handle our mess. God can handle my mess. God can handle your pressure. God can handle the tensions happening in my marriage. God can handle the tensions going on in your extended family. God's got this. God can handle this. And so going back to 2 Samuel chapter 19, we're actually going to read from the end of verse 18 into uh, chapter 19. I believe that by walking backward through the life of David, we not only get a lot of tools, but we actually get a roadmap for dealing with family conflict in a healthy way so that we win and we don't lose. So I'm going to start reading at the end of this soap opera that David has been experiencing sometime that centers on a very dysfunctional relationship in his life between King David and his son Absalom. Now, we're going to walk backward through the text. We're going to read the end of it now and then walk backward simply because this soap opera goes on uh, for about seven chapters in David's life. And again, just creates a roadmap for us that I think will be really helpful. So uh, starting with 2 Samuel chapter 18, verse 31, this situation of pressure between David and his eldest son Absalom has been building, as I said, for years now and across seven chapters of Scripture, and it finally erupts in an all-out war between the two parties. David's oldest son gets a militia together, wants to take over the kingdom. David, of course, has to get his troops together and fight a war. David's troops crush Absalom, his son's militia, and this is the end of the battle when David finds out that his son Absalom has been killed. 2 Samuel 18, 31 says, Then the Cushite arrived and said, My lord the king, hear the good news. The Lord has delivered you today from all who rose up against you. The king asked the Cushite, Is the young man Absalom safe? The Cushite replied, May the enemies of my lord the king and all who rise up to harm you be like that young man. The king was shaken. He went up to the room over the gateway and wept. As he went, he said, Oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom. If only I had died instead of you, O Absalom, my son, my son. Joab, who was David's general, was told, The king is weeping and mourning for Absalom. And for the whole army, the victory that day was turned into mourning, because on that day the troops heard it said, The king is grieving for his son. The men stole into the city that day as men stealing who are ashamed when they flee from battle. The king covered his face and cried aloud, O oh, my son Absalom. Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. It's a, it's a painful passage to read. My family right now, we are obsessed with this new Broadway play about Alexander Hamilton that you may have heard about. The album is actually number 12 on the Billboard charts right now. And there's a song after which Alexander Hamilton had lost, has lost his 19-year-old son, Philip, to a duel. And the song is just so full of pathos as he... And his wife, Eliza, mourned the loss of their son. And I can't help but think of that time of mourning when I read this scripture, this text, this broken heart of a father. It's all the more sad, all the more passionate, because we know what a hero David was. We know that he had been setting himself up for a heroic life ever since that he was a child. I mean, if anyone in the Bible longed to be a hero, 
It was David. David always would stand up for himself. He would always stand up for his nation. And he would always certainly stand up for God. And if David was ever afraid to die to advance any one of those causes, well, he sure never showed it. From routing foreign armies to defeating the giant Goliath to, to, to writing gutsy psalms to defending his own property and his own legacy, David was a hero of the Old Testament. He had a hero's will, a hero's pride, and a hero's courage. He was a man's man, a template, a model, an exemplar. And yet in the scripture we just read, all of David's heroism is broken to pieces. He stands atop the city gate in full view of all the city and he weeps with pathos and sadness. Absalom, Absalom, my son, my son. It's not coincidental that the great southern novelist William Faulkner actually named his greatest novel about southern family dysfunction that we all know well who grew up in the south. He named that, that book Absalom, Absalom because of the emotion that this passage captures for us. Now one thinks about other great national leaders who in the middle of vying for the survival of their nation suffered the loss of a child. Abraham Lincoln didn't, during the American Civil War. Nelson Mandela as he lay imprisoned upon Robben Island, God the Father on Good Friday. And yet the scripture is clear in the life of David that there's a particular ingredient that works its way into this story that sets David apart from those other examples in history. You see, the book of 2 Samuel, which in general is very pro-David, is very clear on the fact that this situation in David's family with Absalom, it is all David's fault, and he knows it. See, his cry, Absalom, Absalom, is full of shame. It's full of personal regret. It's full of the known reality in David's heart that it wasn't Absalom who caused this mess. It was David because he refused to deal with the conflict in his family that was staring him in the face. And if you were to read the rest of 2 Samuel, do you know what you would find? That the life and legacy of David go downhill from there. And there's a reason, guys, lean in with me here, that stories like this are in the Bible. Is not it the case that through this story, the heart of God is calling out to you and I saying, you don't have to wind up like King David. And as we walk backward through the story, I believe that God gives us a roadmap on how not to wind up in this situation and how to deal with family conflict productively and in a healthy way. So I want to cite three lessons, I believe, and principles that we get from the life of David that apply in a really relevant way to dealing with the conflict that you and I inevitably deal with on a regular basis within our family. Here's the first thing that David refused to do. David ignored clear warning signs that something was about to be seriously wrong. I want to flip back to 2 Samuel chapter 15 and just show you the first of these warning signs. Long before Absalom had a militia behind him, long before there was any conspiracy plot that people knew about, long before David's cry of Absalom, Absalom, look at this warning sign a few chapters earlier, 2 Samuel 15. It says, in the course of time, Absalom provided himself with a chariot and horses and with 50 men to run ahead of him. So this is the stuff that 
young people do. This is healthy. Absalom's full of vinegar. He wants to make something of his life. And he has all of the wealth of the king's court behind him. So he says, I'm going to become a man and a warrior and a leader in my own right. Nothing wrong with that. But there's something wrong with what happens next. Verse 2. He would get up early and stand by the side of the road leading to the city gate. Whenever anyone came with a complaint to be placed before the king for a decision, Absalom would call out to him, What town are you from? He would answer, Your servant is from one of the tribes of Israel. Then Absalom would say to him, Look, your claims are valid and proper, but there is no representative of the king to hear you. And Absalom would add, If only I were appointed judge in the land, then everyone who has a complaint or case would come to me and would see that he gets justice. Also, whenever anyone approached him to bow down before him, Absalom would reach out his hand, take hold of him, and kiss him. Absalom behaved in this way toward all the Israelites who came to the king asking for justice. And so he stole the hearts of the men of Israel. So this is kind of like of the Watergate scandal of the 1970s here, except at least the political Watergate scandal was an attempt to be in secret. Absalom is doing this in the open, in front of everybody, every day, armed with this retinue of soldiers behind him, meant to make him look like the big man. His post guard stands right up in front of the city gate, and he intercepts people who are going to see his father, the king, and he attempts to take the king's place, to give them what they need, to mediate their problems. I've got news for you. If you have an ancient king and there's somebody outside the city gates trying to fix your problems for you, trying to win over your subjects so that they don't even see you, you've got a serious problem, don't you? Everybody sees the problem. Everybody knows the problem. Everybody's talking about the problem. All of David's advisors are aware of the problem. It's kind of like the place where you work, your job site or your office or, or your school, where everybody knows what the problems are, right? Everybody knows who the problem people are, but for some reason the boss either doesn't know or won't take action on what those problems are. It's the same thing going on right here. David has a clear warning sign. This is not going to solve itself. It's not going to work itself out, and yet David ignores the warning sign, and I am convinced that the grace of God gives us warning signs in our lives. You know what? In the last two weeks, I believe God has shown me some very clear warning signs for my life. I think God loves us too much to not give us warning signs. We see it throughout the people of Scripture, not only in the life of David, but in the life of Abraham, in the life of Moses, in the life of uh, Jonah, in the life of Samson, in the life of Peter, even in the life of Paul. You know what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 7? He says, in order to keep me from becoming conceited, God gave a thorn in my flesh. I think that's remarkable. Paul could say that because I was such a leader in the early Christian movement, because everything was going so well, because the churches were growing, because people were recognizing my leadership, God could see that all that stuff might go to my head. So he sent me a warning sign. And I believe God, through his grace and love for us, is still in that business. Can I give you just a few of the typical warning signs that I've seen in my life from time to time and that I think are just very typical in the lives of men and women? Here, here are just a few. Here's one. If your marriage begins to feel like you are co-workers rather than husband and wife, that is a warning sign. And this is very, very common in the lives of married couples with young children. And I can't tell you, there are multiple times my wife and I looked each other in the eye when our kids were babies 
and said to one another, wow, I feel like we're working for the Rice Corporation here, sort of keeping the, you know, keeping the engine humming, getting all of the stuff done, but I kind of miss being married to you and feeling what that's like. Again, it's just a warning sign. It's just God saying, hey, you need to bring in some parental help. You need to get away. You need, you need to recalibrate this, this marriage thing. It's more than a company that you're running out of your household. It's just it's something I think that we all go through, and it's just a clear warning sign. Here's, a, here's another one. If you find yourself dwelling as a married person, I'll talk to the unmarried people in a moment and the students, but as a married person, if you find yourself dwelling on a feeling of attraction for somebody else who's not your spouse, that's a warning sign. Now listen. We can't control attraction. It's, it's a chemical combustion that God put in your brain, okay? It's, it's going to happen. Expect it, accept it. It's going to happen. But God has given us the power to have control over what we dwell on and the thoughts that we cultivate. And if those thoughts are being cultivated and those sort of false narratives and fantasies start to form in your head, that's God just saying, hey, let me get your attention here because some things on the home front need to be taken care of. It's not something to, to beat yourself up about. It's a warning sign. It's God putting flashing red sign in front of you saying, pay attention here. I, I, want, I, I want to get some work done with you here. Um, here's the third warning sign that I've noticed, uh, especially with students. Okay? It, if you are lonely and you find yourself interacting with screens more and more, that, that's a warning sign, okay? Because screens, especially through social media, they seem to put us more in touch with people. But do you know that they actually make us lonelier? Like all this binge-watching TV, social media for hours a day, online pornography. It's all kind of a drug. It, it gives us this immediate fix, this immediate feeling of relief from the loneliness, but you know what? That interaction with screens, it makes things worse. It makes the loneliness worse. It makes the sense of isolation and disconnect worse over time. And it's just, a, it's, a, it's a warning sign, you know? The average American, I don't even know how this is possible. I'm like, the stat is true. I watches four hours of television per day. And that has nothing to do with the other screens that we interact with through our smartphone, through the internet, etc. That is really, really unhealthy. And if you find yourself falling into that pattern, maybe you're a high school student or a college student, like, just think about what that means. Okay? Just think about what God is trying to tell you. It doesn't work. It doesn't work. And it's nothing but a warning sign. One, let me give you another one here. If you use a credit card for certain expenditures and you reach a month where suddenly there's a balance on that credit card that moves to the next month, Okay, it's nothing to beat yourself up about. The average American is in credit card debt. It's just a warning sign. Okay, it's God saying, all right, my, my spending here is disproportionate to what I'm bringing in. What does that have to do with family conflict? Everything, especially if you're a married person. I have a close friend in my neighborhood who's not a Christian, but he's married to a Christian, and we've just become really, really tight. He comes to church with me on Easter every year, and that's the only time I've gotten him to come. So I'm still working on him all the time, and, and God is at work. It's not all up to me. But the four of us, me and my wife, we were talking to them, and, and um, he said, uh, he asked the question, since I have the opportunity to do some marriage counseling from time to time as a pastor, he said, uh, you know, what's the main source of marriage conflict is it you know is it religion because he was kind of thinking well i'm not a christian and my wife is and she really doesn't like that i said no it's not it's money hands down it's the easiest answer 
ever. I mean, what wrecks marriages and families is mismanaging money. So if the credit card is upside down, it's just a warning sign to get it right side up because it will promote so much health in your family. Hey, it doesn't matter what the warning sign is. It just matters that we pray about it and follow it. I love this verse from 1 Corinthians. It's 1 Corinthians 2, verse 10. It says, the Holy Spirit searches all things in us. I love that. I guarantee you. I, I guarantee this. Okay, I'm not trying to sound salesman here. No offense to the salesman in the room. If you will get alone and be quiet and just ask God, Lord, what do you want to show me? The Holy Spirit will reveal it to you, and it will be really quick. This is not like I need to spend days on my, you know, knees and fasting and prayer. Like, it will be, those warning signs will be very, very, you'll be made aware of them very quickly. And I'm also encouraged by 1 Corinthians 2, verse 16, that makes this audacious claim. It says, we have the mind of Christ. Wow. I mean, God thinks so much of us that he will give us the mind of Jesus Christ to discern what those warning signs are before they go off the rails. Does that make sense? Okay, here's the second thing from the life of David. Not only did David ignore clear warning signs, but David enabled someone in his family to take advantage of him. Look what happens in the next part of 2 Samuel 15. Verse 7 says, At the end of four years, Absalom said to the king, For four years, Absalom's been setting up camp, doing what he's doing outside the city gates subverting the leadership of his father. Four years this goes on. Wow, I mean, do you think David's credibility in the eyes of his subjects, in the eyes of his employees, in the eyes of his court went down, down, down? Absolutely. So after four years, he says, let me go to Hebron and fulfill a vow I made to the Lord. While your servant was living at Geshur and Aram, I made this vow. If the Lord takes me back to Jerusalem, I will worship the Lord in Hebron. The king said to him, go in peace. So he went to Hebron. Then Absalom sent secret messengers throughout the tribes of Israel to say, As soon as you hear the sound of the trumpets, then say, Absalom is king in Hebron. This is a strange passage for us because it seems like Absalom is asking the king's permission to go to Hebron. Why would he need the king's permission? He's been subverting the king's leadership for an entire four years. I want to suggest to you that what Absalom is actually asking for is provision to go to Hebron. Absalom not only wants to go to Hebron, but he wants for King David to supply the men to protect him on the journey, to supply the money to get there, to even supply the cost of the sacrifice. If ever there was a moment ready-made for David to get in Absalom's face and say, this is done, and we're going to have a tough conversation right now about this conflict between us, about what's germinating between us, this was the moment. And yet David pawns it off. David enables, he gives Absalom the tools to use against him. And this is so common in the lives of family members. This is very common in the lives of Christians. Do you know why? Because Christians mistake the the principles of God's grace and forgiveness with enablement. These are two dramatically different things that we should not confuse. Um, I think where we probably see this dynamic the most is in poor approaches to parenting. Have you ever noticed that um, the children of very successful Americans tend to struggle to be successful themselves? The sociologists study this all the time. 
that maybe a, per, a, a leader who came up from nothing and who becomes a great business mind, a very wealthy person, a great entrepreneur, that their kids tend to flounder for a long time if they ever even find their own path. You know why that is? It's actually really simple. That person who hit the big time, who built a great company, who became a great leader, who created a, enormous wealth for themselves, they typically had very little growing up. And that put a drive in them to achieve and succeed. And so when they reach the peak of their success, they want to make sure that their kids don't have to struggle as they did. But I've got news for you, and I've got girls who are 10 and 8, and this is real. Your kids need to struggle. That's really important. Like It's important that they struggle. That, that shows them what their limitations are. That helps them begin to deal with stress and pressure in a very healthy way. Your kids need to fail. My kids need to fail. I really, I'm not the best parent in the world, but I try to make a concerted effort to talk to my kids about my failures, to talk to my kids about when I didn't make the team, when I didn't get the promotion, when I interviewed for the job and was passed up for somebody else. They need to hear those stories. Your child does not need to get a participation award, okay? They need to lose. They need to get their butt kicked. Like, that's the deal. Like, when Sophia loses a soccer match, she plays academy-level soccer. Like, I want her to know, you got your butt kicked out there. Now, that team was just better than you, and they played better than you. That's important. Like, that's part of healthy development. And if you're one of those parents who every time your kid fails or fails to achieve something and your first phone call is to the coach who cut your kid or didn't play your kid enough or to the teacher who gave her that bad grade or even worse, to a lawyer when your kid kind of engages in fringe behavior, you are doing irreparable damage to the life of your child. And you're clapping because you watch it happen. You've seen this happen just as I have. And what you're doing in that case is you're teaching your child the way that the world does not work. And some of the saddest conversations I've had, and I can name names, are with parents of 40-year-old children who might as well be 14. And sometimes these parents are multi-multi-millionaires. And they simply rescued their kid from every problem that their kid created for themselves. Let me give you the definition of enablement. This is gold, by the way. If you walk out with just this, this sentence, it was actually worth coming to Canton Church today. <laughs> Here's the definition. Enablement is disconnecting the natural consequences of someone's actions from those actions. That's all it is, especially in parenting. Disconnecting the natural consequences of one's actions from those actions. Because we live in a world and in a society where you will get your just returns where the natural consequences of your actions will catch up with you and will follow you. And we cannot use family as an excuse to retool that formula. Because if we retool that formula, we're simply teaching family members to believe in a lie that does not exist, and it will catch up with them in the real world. Does that make sense? Okay, I want to drill down a little bit more because I'm feeling your energy here. This is something that we all deal with. Uh, I want to talk about um, enablement in situations not of parenting, but of ex extended family. Because I think, like, we see this a lot when, when we're adults in our extended family. I'm going to put an image on the screen. This is called the Karpman Triangle. And it was invented by a medical doctor back in the 1960s named Dr. Stephen Karpman. And it is meant to describe and explain the way that enablement will fuel vicious, a vicious cycle 
of family conflict. So here's how family conflict works when it's fueled by enablement. There are three actors. First at the bottom, you have a victim. And a victim's mentality is poor me and tends to blame people outside of the victim's self for the victim's failure to make progress and to move forward in life. Next, there is a rescuer in this classic triangle of family conflict. And a rescuer has a need to be needed and constantly is helping the victim out, not recognizing that their help is actually making the victim remain stuck and remain in the the same place. And lastly, the persecutor who has an attitude of, it's all your fault, and acts as an aggressor, persecuting the victim, which continues to tee up the victim for more and more help from the rescue. And some of you, like, I see the light bulbs going off because you've attached specific names. Like everything about your extended family and why this conflict is going on has become clear to you, thanks to Dr. Stephen Cartman. So what do we do when we encounter one of these in our extended family? By the way, this is uh, super common in the lives of adult siblings uh, and mothers. Sometimes you'll have a mother as a rescuer, an adult sibling as a victim. He's still, he or she is still a teenager in their mind because they never had to grow up. And then the father is the persecutor or another sibling is the persecutor. Let's just be adult about it. Like this is, this is really, really common. What do we do? This is hard to say. Don't try to help. But I'm going to give you some gold right now. Don't try to help because... All of the Christian counselors will tell you, you can't fix it. And instead what happens is, if you enter the triangle, you get sucked into the triangle. And eventually, you become one of the three. And it's hard as a Christian to accept that. I want you to pray for people from a distance. You don't have to... Being separate from something doesn't mean you're angry and bitter. Choosing to disengage doesn't mean I've got all these feelings of unforgiveness and bitterness. You can deal with those on your own with God's help. But sometimes the most God-honoring thing that you can do is to disengage from, a healthy, from an unhealthy system of conflict that will suck you in. This is a perfectly calibrated engine that feeds upon itself, and it works beautifully. It works terribly beautifully. Disengage. Okay? It's just what you have to do. People are given free will to do what they want, and so are you. Disengage. Pray about it and disengage. You know what Jesus said in Luke 17, verse 6? It's always crazy to actually read the Gospels, to read the things Jesus says. And sometimes you read them and you're like, that's not very Jesus-y. Like, I thought Jesus was nice to everybody. (laughs) Jesus said in Luke 17, verse 6, he says this. If your brother sins against you, rebuke him. Wow, don't brush it under the rug. Don't act like it's no big deal. Don't say, oh, you know what, I forgive you. No, Jesus says rebuke him. And then the next half of the verse, if he repents, forgive him. Wow. And we get that jumbled around. We get that backwards. And we use the grace of God and the principle of forgiveness in the Bible as an excuse to fuel Cartman triangles when, in fact, the most gracious thing to do can be to disengage, whatever the case Refuse to enable, and it'll put tools in your toolbox to defuse family conflict before it gets out of hand. Here's the third thing. The third thing is David did not enforce healthy boundaries around his life. Now, skipping back to the first passage we read where David weeps 
over his son. It's interesting. The one with the most sense in the whole dang story. You know who it is? It's the general Joab. Joab is the one who speaks some sense into King David, which shows um, not only intelligence, but it shows a boldness to speak the truth even when it's tough. 2 Samuel 19 verse 5 says, Then Joab went into the house to the king and said, Today you have humiliated all your men who have just saved your life and the lives of your sons and daughters and the lives of your wives and concubines. You love those who hate you and hate those who love you. You have made it clear today that the commanders and their men mean nothing to you. I see that you would be pleased if Absalom were alive today and all of us were dead. Now go out and encourage your men. I swear by the Lord that if you don't go out, not a man will be left with you by nightfall. This will be worse for you than all the calamities that have come upon you from your youth till now. Man, I'm thankful for Joab's in my life, number one. I hope you've got some. People that will get in your face and tell you the truth. Joab was like that with David. I think that's inspiring in and of itself. Verse 8. So the king got up and took his seat in the gateway. When the men were told the king is sitting in the gateway, they all came before him. Joab gets in David's face and he says, David, you need to demarcate the boundary between your life as a father and your job. Your life as the king and your life as a father is getting them mixed up and you need to stop getting them mixed up. Joab says to David, you need to understand the boundaries in your life because when those boundaries get blurred, family conflict gets worse. That's reality. Do you have boundaries in your life? Now, I've got a few and I just want to share them with you. Not because I think my boundaries ought to be your boundaries. Honestly, that, that's not my point. I want to make the point that I can articulate my boundaries. Right or wrong, like, I know what they are. They make some people mad, and that's okay. Like, they're, they're boundaries that I know are going to protect me. And I hope you have some also. Here's a boundary for, for me. I don't have friends that are women. I'm a 38-year-old man. My girlfriend is my wife, and she is meant to fulfill that for me. Now, that may not be the case with you. And, I, you know, I, I'm not here to chide you about that. that. That's not the point. But I have male friends who kind of have, you know, work relationships. They might go have lunch with one of those work relationships one-on-one. And, like, I, I just don't do that. We have couples who we're friends with. I care dearly about the, the wife in the, that couple. Uh, but, you know, that relationship is mediated through my wife. It's just a boundary that I have. Another boundary that I have personally is my wife has access to all of my social media and all of my electronic communication. Does she ever look at it? No. That's not the point. The point is I want that to be open. I mean, just counseling with people, I can't tell you how many bad things begin with social media stuff. And when I have girlfriends from the past that try to like become my Facebook friend, I don't even think about it. It's a deny every time. Because i got plenty of friends and I don't need another one from the past. I just don't, don't want to even go there. My work email also comes through my wife's iPad. If for any reason she wants to see who I'm emailing and what I'm emailing about, she can pull that up at a moment's notice, any day of the week, any time. And look, it's just a boundary that matters to me. Another boundary for me is I don't work seven days a week at the church. I love you, I love Jesus, but not that much. I just ain't going to do it. My kids are small, and oftentimes, and you all know this, we'll have office hours Monday through Thursday. We'll have a ministry event Thursday. We'll have, I'm sorry, Friday. We'll have a ministry event Saturday. We'll have church on Sunday. That means I cut something and someone will get mad at me. 
Honestly, that's just the way it is. I mean, it happens. People yell at me. People get mad at me. Like, it would shock you how little I care. Like, it's very unpastoral. <laughs> how little I care. Uh, I just decided that with my kids being small, and that may change. I'm sure it will at a later point in time. With my kids being small, it's, it's just a boundary that I have. And again, I'm not trying to elevate myself here. And I'm not the model for this. I'm just saying I can articulate them. Like, I know what they are. And maybe one of the most healthy conversations you can have as a student, as a sibling, as a spouse, as a parent, is to sit down with a piece of paper and to demarcate your boundaries. You just say, like, here's, here's my life plan. It's not for anybody else. It's not so much about right and wrong. It's about what's wise and unwise. It's about what's wise for me, what's God's plan for me. It can be a healthy and life-giving thing. Y'all, I've gone, oh my Lord. There's a little clock back there, and it's in red, which means I'm way over my time. I'm five minutes and 30 seconds over my time. Mm. Uh, I want to pray for you. Uh, after we dismiss, uh, Pastor Trevor's going to come and, and receive the offering. We're going to have another song of worship, I think. But after we dismiss, our prayer team is going to be hanging out up here. Okay? We would love to pray for you and your family. You might have a situation of family conflict that's very close to you. Maybe something going on in other states among extended family. Don't miss the opportunity to release that unto the Lord. To just decide, you know what, I'm not going to keep this balled up at the center of my anger. But I'm going to live with open hands here. I'm going to trust that God is big enough and God really loves them more than I ever could. And God cares about this more than I ever could. I'm going to ask for him to start to take this burden off of me. We would love to pray for you at the end of the service after we dismiss right up front. Gracious God, thank you that you preordained the family to be a vibrant institution of health and goodness, wellness, life, energy, vibrance in our lives. And I pray, God, for men and women really walking through a time of family conflict right now uh, in their marriage, Lord, in their extended family with siblings, from parent to child, from child to parent. God, give us the strength to open up our hearts to just let you work. Give us the strength to trust. And give us the know-how to, to use the tools that you've given us through your word to begin to diffuse that conflict. We just want to give it to you right now. In Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks again for listening today. If you would like more information about today's message or about our church, we invite you to visit us at cantonchurch.com or facebook.com slash cantonchurchga.com.